Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are watching online. We are so glad uh, that you are with us today as we continue with our series, The Story. And boy, Pastor Brian did a phenomenal job last Sunday with David and Bathsheba. Just, if, if you get a chance to get the CD back at the Resource Center, or if you'd like to go online uh, to our website, to the Sermon Archives, it's, uh, it's up there. Get a hold of that. It really was one of those powerful God moments uh, here at our church and really encourage you uh, to take advantage of that. And, and when we see the David and Bathsheba story, sometimes we think, oh, well, it was just kind of an instantaneous bad decision. But we believe that probably things were going wrong in David's heart for quite some time. There were little compromises, a little chill, a little lack of undivided commitment to the Lord that took place over a period of time, little by little, inch by inch, until it culminated in that uh, act that he did against Uriah and Bathsheba. And we can certainly see that in the life of his son, Solomon, and that's why we call him the Frog King. Uh, the frog king, because we use that illustration about how a frog, they say, if you drop it in boiling water, will jump right out. On the other hand, if you take that same frog and put it in lukewarm water and gradually boil the water, it'll sit there just happy as can be until it dies through boiling. I was listening to this message from Randy Frazee, and all I had was a CD. I didn't, wasn't watching it like a DVD. I was just listening to it as I drove my car. And uh, he's got this frog there in a kettle in front of the whole congregation. And then all of a sudden, I hear him turning on burners underneath it. And I thought, my gracious, he's going to boil the frog in front of everybody as his sermon goes on. And I said, man, you know, we, they can get by with that in Texas, but that is not going to fly in California. And I was just blown away. And then it comes to the end of the message and realize it was a plastic frog. It wasn't a live frog. But I tell you, if I boiled a live frog here, we would all remember that, wouldn't we? That would be something that would stick in our mind. So try to have that imagery, even if we're not literally going uh, to do that. But that's the danger, the frog in the kettle. Things changing, little compromise, bit by bit. Uh, it happens in nations. Would anybody say amen to that? Do you ever feel like we as a nation are frogs in a kettle? That our culture around us is changing and it's so incremental and it's so little by little that all of a sudden we'll be in trouble and we don't realize it. It can happen with Christian organizations. Little decisions here and there. And all of a sudden, uh, Christian organizations in one generation, you can't even tell they're Christian in the subsequent generations. You think of something like the YMCA or the YWCA, which were on fire Christian organizations during the time of D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, during the 1800s. And today they're a great place to work out, but not very much spiritually connected with them at all. You can see that with the great universities of our country, most of which were founded as, uh, by on-fire followers of Jesus Christ with a mandate to preach the gospel, and you can hardly tell. In many cases, they are anti-Christian rather than following their Christian foundation. You can see it in churches. That's why I'm so proud to be a part of a church that for 144 years, think of how vigilant we've needed to be over 144 years as frogs that potentially being in the kettle, how vigilant we've had to be to still be passionate and committed to our original commitment to the cause of Christ after 144 years uh, as frogs in the kettle. It's dangerous. It's dangerous within our, our culture. Now, we tend to emphasize accommodations to our culture and to our society and to the culture around us. 
But the opposite is also dangerous. We also need to be vigilant that we don't lose our heart for the lost, that we don't become like the Pharisees who were so interested in the mechanisms of their religious organization that they forgot that it's all about lost people and reaching people for the cause of Christ. And so we've got to be vigilant in both directions, that we don't become frog in the kettles compromising with the world, and that we don't lose our first love and forget that the whole cause of Christ is all about going to heaven and taking as many people with us there as well. Little decisions, little compromises lead to great trouble later on. Little changes in temperature in the water lead to boiling frogs uh, later on and lead to our destruction. I've shared this illustration with you before, but the Continental Divide, I believe it's somewhere up in the Colorado Rockies, there's this point on the Continental Divide where literally inches apart, if a raindrop falls here, it ends up in the Atlantic Ocean, and if a raindrop falls here, it ends up in the Pacific Ocean. And at the beginning, it can seem very, very slight variations, and yet they end up opposite poles from each other. And the same thing is true within our Christian lives. Little compromises, little decisions here and there can lead up to big divisions later on. And we see this in the life of David with Bathsheba last Sunday, and we see that now in the life of his son Solomon. Now Solomon starts out great. He pleases God by asking for wisdom to reign as king. God invites Solomon to ask him for anything. 1 Kings 3, verse 5, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Well, Solomon asked for wisdom. The Hebrew word here is hokmah, uh, to rule as king and administer justice. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord, my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father, David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this great people of yours. Wow, God is always happy to answer that prayer. Whenever we pray, God, give me chokmah. Lord, give me wisdom to fulfill your calling on my life. God, give me wisdom and discernment to fulfill the purpose for which you made me. God, Give me wisdom over the next 21 days with my oikos, Greek word for household, the eight to 15 in my sphere of influence. Lord, show me who to ask and how to ask them to get them there at the fairplex so they can connect with Jesus and join me in heaven for eternity. Lord, show me if I need to buy them lunch afterwards or if I need to pick them up and drive them there. Lord, show me that if their schedule is different than my schedule, that I can change my schedule to meet them at the service that is best for them, not necessarily the service that is best for me and, and my family commitments. Lord, would you give me wisdom so that I can fulfill my calling, the purpose for which we, you made me to go to heaven and to take my oikos with me there. Lord, give me wisdom and discernment. And it says, the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. God is pleased when that's the prayer of our heart. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, 
nor have asked for the death of your enemies. How handy that would be. Come in. Kind of an Old Testament prayer rather than a New Testament prayer. But this is what a king would long for at that time. They would want long life. They would want wealth. And they would want the death of their enemies. But instead, you've prayed for discernment and administering justice. I will do what you have asked. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Everything else will fall into place when the first prayer of our heart is not for wealth. The first prayer of our heart is not for good health and long life. The first prayer of our life is not for defeating our enemies and succeeding. But the cry of our heart is, oh God, give me chokmah. Give me wisdom so I can fulfill the calling, the plan, the purpose that you have for my life. Now, Solomon's wisdom is tested by two women who each claim the same baby as their own. And there's this heartbreaking story of two women, and one of their children dies, and so the other swaps it in the night and, and says, this is my baby. And the other one gets up and says, this is not my child, uh, because they've been traded in the night. And so they go before Solomon, and each one is saying, this is my baby. And so Solomon, with this wisdom that God now gives him, and this is just the tip of the iceberg, just an example of his wisdom, says, well, let's go ahead and cut the baby in two. And the woman whose baby it was not said, sounds like a good plan to me. If I have to have grief, then she should have grief as well. If my heart's broken, then her heart needs to be broken. But the true mother said, you know what? It's better to let the child live with somebody else than to, than to, lose that, than to have that child die. And so she says, no, 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 just give her to the other woman. And Solomon says, that's the one that's the real mother. And, and, and what a beautiful thing. And so Solomon says, that's, that's the one. And everybody sees that as an example of this wisdom and answer to his prayer. Next page of your study outline. Solomon writes wisdom. So everyone in his realm may be wise as well. Now, what confuses us about the Bible sometimes and why the story has been so helpful is that the Bible is written not chronologically or it's not organized chronologically, but topically. And that's why we get confused. And so that's why we've enjoyed the story is because it's somewhat chronological and so it helps us keep things straight. See, just generally, the Bible has the first five books of Moses and so you have uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're kind of historical books, but they're the books of the law. Then they're followed by the historical books. Uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, the history books. Then it's followed by five books of poetry. Job and Psalms, and then these three that were written by Solomon. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon. And then it goes to the prophetic books, the books of the prophets. And you see, during the historical books, the poetry happens, interspersed in that, and the prophecy happens. And so that's why the story has been helpful. For example, last Sunday, as Pastor Brian was preaching on David and Bathsheba, you go to Psalm 51 from the poetry section, and that's the prayer that David made after he was convicted of his sin by Nathan. And so, because it's put chronologically in order, it's, it's easier to understand, and sometimes we get confused by its topical organization rather than its chronological orientation. Now Solomon builds a temple for God, and he grows in popularity. Let's put some maps up there. The first one there is you can see the, the shaded in area, that was under Saul. And then the whole yellow boundary, that was expanded the kingdom under David. And then you add the purple part at the top, and that's the realm of Solomon in addition to everything David had. 
So it just keeps expanding from Saul to David to Solomon. If we go to the next map, you'll see the whole area that was governed by Solomon, his whole area of influence. And, and then we go to the next one, you'll see this, uh, archaeologists have discovered this picture, what's called a relief, kind of a raised picture there. And you can see the type of ship. This is actually a Phoenician ship that the Assyrians used in 700 B.C., and so uh, Solomon's ships were very similar to this. They would go all around the Mediterranean or the Red Sea. They accumulated, the Bible says, 25 tons of gold. And Solomon took much of that gold and he builds a beautiful temple. Historians tell us it took about 180,000 workers seven years to complete this temple and he get, dedicates it to God. We'll put a diagram up of the temple. And it wasn't all that big. The dimensions are not all that large, but it was incredibly expensive, incredibly ornate, covered by gold, practically all gold, and it was just one of the wonders of the ancient world. But here's the more important thing about the temple. We've talked about the fact that there are certain clues in the early part of the story that tell us how the story's going to end. We saw this with Ruth and the kinsman redeemer and with Judges that Jesus is the ultimate deliverer. And we saw it in Exodus with Jesus, the Passover lamb. And now we come to another one with the temple. The temple is a picture of Jesus. It is God dwelling with his people in the same way the incarnation of Jesus is God dwelling with us. It's also a picture of God's relationship with us. When we commit our lives to Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and now we have God living within us, his temple. It's a picture ahead of time of the church. When the church comes together, we're not a building, but we're a group of God's temple, the Holy Spirit living in each one of us, and together, gathered, we are the temple, the living temple of God dwelling with his people. And it's also a foreshadowing of heaven, because the definition of heaven is God dwelling with his people as he dwelt in the temple with his people under Solomon. Now, God in his next appearance to Solomon, both blesses him and he warns him. So he appears him the first time to ask him what to pray for, and now he appears to him a second time. And it's an incredible thing when God shows up. Had quite an experience on Friday night, one of the most powerful worship experiences Kimberly and I have ever had. And it wasn't in a church, it was in a movie theater. Let me tell you what happened. Friday night, we're going to see the movie God's Not Dead. And, and really a great, great movie. I would recommend it to you. And we're going to see this movie, and we're at the Harkins Theater in Chino Hills, and the theater was absolutely packed. I mean, it was so full that we were sitting way down front where we normally don't like to sit, you know, craning up your neck, but the place was just really full. And it was just a, just a great Christian movie. And it ended up with this, the Newsboys, this Christian rock band, you know, ended up there, and all the main characters end up there. When I was young, in a Billy Graham movie, they all ended up at a Billy Graham crusade. Any of you remember the old Billy Graham movies? Uh, my dad was against the movie industry. You know, I never saw a movie until I was 20 years old, because my dad was just against the whole industry. But as a businessman, he would sponsor the Billy Graham films in our area. And so my sisters and I had a joke that my dad would only support a movie if it was rated bg for Billy Graham. That's the only reason. And so some of you may remember the old ones like Time to Run. My best friend in high school came to Christ uh, seeing Time to Run and For Pete's Sake and The Restless Ones and, and all these Billy Graham movies. And so the main characters in a Billy Graham movie always end up at a Billy Graham crusade. Well, nowadays they end up at a Newsboys conference, a con concert. That's a concert. That's where they end up. And so it's just the grand crescendo of the movie and the whole place is packed and it's just, there's so much energy there and they're doing that 
song, God's Not Dead, uh, which is just such a great song by the Newsboys. And everybody's supposed to be texting 10 different people, God's Not Dead. And it's supposed to be this viral thing that everybody's texting 10 people that they know, God, with those three words, God's Not Dead. And the leader of the band at the, at the end of the, you know, towards the end of the song, he goes, I can feel God showing up tonight. I can feel his power. And right then, the earthquake hits. My goodness. Now, I'm so dense, I think it's part of the movie. I, I, I'm sitting there, and I'm like, it's like a Disney ride, right? You know, that somehow they had rigged up the theater to kind of shake. During the, the whole theater goes crazy. People are cheering. People are standing up, worshiping. We're, we're giving each other high fives. Um, People are repenting of sin. People are getting saved. I mean, it was just like this awesome, awesome uh, moment. And, and that's the way it is when, when, God, when God shows up. And so he shows up the second time with Solomon. He says, as for you, God says, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. But, to have a pencil or pen, circle that little word, but. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I've given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject This temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? And people will answer, because they have forsaken the Lord their God who brought their ancestors out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all this disaster on them. Queen of Sheba visits Solomon, admires his wisdom and his kingdom. This is a picture from an African monument. Uh, Queen of Sheba is greatly honored in Africa because she was African and seen as a seeker after the truth. And so Christians and others honor the Queen of Sheba there. And this is from an African monument, uh, the Queen of Sheba. But here's the point I really want to emphasize about her. When she comes, she's just amazed by Solomon. But I love verse 8. She says, how happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. How happy the people in our sphere of influence are when the prayer of our heart is, oh God, give me wisdom to influence people for eternal things. Oh God, give me wisdom with my oikos to influence them, not for temporary things, but for eternal things. God, give me wisdom to fulfill your plan and purpose. Uh, Well, your, your calling on my life. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. How happy the family when godly parents and grandparents influence their family towards the things of Christ. How happy your work colleagues when the prayer of your heart is, God, give me wisdom so that I can be effective 
in influencing things in a, in a positive, godly way in the workplace. How happy the members of your organization, if you're in leadership in that Sunday school class or that organization, how, how happy those people are that when you pray, God, give me wisdom so that I can be a blessing to them. How happy the church that has leadership that prays, oh God, give us wisdom to influence people for, the, for eternity. How happy your oikos when you stand with your oikos in heaven. How happy they will be that you thought strategically, you prayed for wisdom. Oh God, give me wisdom. How can I get that member of my oikos to one of those Easter services so they can connect with you and stand together with us together in heaven for all eternity? How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. But Solomon, who started strong, ends poorly. As Solomon grew old, his 700 wives led his heart away to worship idols. Now you think to yourself, who needs 700 wives? Uh, Back then, it was a sign of power and and, and wealth. So it was a way you showed that you could support this many wives. And so it would be a sign of wealth and power and influence. It was also the way kings did foreign policy treaties. That if you you make a treaty with another country, you'd come home from making that treaty with a wife uh, from that king's family or from, uh, from that particular country. Can you imagine if we did that today, if every time President Obama went on a foreign policy trip did a treaty, he comes back with another wife. I don't think uh, First Lady Michelle would be very happy with that at all, that arrangement. As a matter of fact, yesterday in my office when I wrote that in my notes, there was an aftershock to the earthquake that I (laughs) felt on Friday night. And I said, uh, just as I was writing that, and I got a kick out of that anyway. King Solomon, and I want you to underline two words and then a series of four words. And these, these are words of warning. These are scary words. The first one is going to be however. It's the howevers in your Christian life that'll get you in the end, won't they? The second one is going to be nevertheless. Nevertheless will get us in trouble as well. And then the the phrase is going to be as Solomon grew old. King Solomon, however, underline that word, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, underline that word, nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, Now, that's one that's scary to me at at my stage in life. We often think, you know, God, protect us when we're young. I mean, that's my prayer for my children. God, help my kids to just get to the age 30 alive, okay, without permanent damage. Lord, God, get them through those teens and 20s. Just get them through to the age of 20 or to the age of 30 without, you know, addictions, without um, permanent damage, uh, without a relationship that they're entangled in that's unhealthy, Lord, help, help them to get them to 30 when their brains will catch up with their body, you know. And, and Lord, uh, just get them there uh, without lasting damage where they can still make adjustments easily 
after the age of 30 rather than with, with difficulty. But here he says that as he grew old, we got to watch out when we're getting old too. Sometimes when you get old, you just get tired of being good. You just get weary of the fight. You get tired of swimming upstream. You get tired of being vigilant against the culture around you or keeping your heart soft and concerned for the lost. There's a danger of getting grouchy when you get older. Getting hardened toward people going to hell and, and, and just not thinking about what can I do to reach the lost. You know, by the, you get older and you think, oh, the lost, they'll just they'll sort it out somehow. And we lose our love for the lost. Um, we can get ornery. Uh, or we can begin to accommodate and, and make compromises with the world and the culture. We get tired of being good. And that's what happened to Solomon. As he grew old, I mean, he thought, I'm so smart, I can have my cake and eat it too. I can have, enjoy this wife and reject her God at the same time. I'm, I'm, I'm Solomon after all. I'm the wisest guy in the world. I can do this. And as he grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch. You know how you would worship Moloch? Child sacrifice. That's how you would worship Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all of his foreign wives who had burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. And the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart was divided. He thought, I'm too wise to have that happen to me. He thought, I can enjoy the wives, but I have the willpower to reject their gods. Randy Frazee writes about this. He says, in all of my years of ministry, I've never met anyone who jumped into a pot of boiling water. I've never met anyone who woke up one morning and declared to himself, I'm going to ruin my relationships with my family and commit adultery today. I've never met a businessman who just out of the blue decided to embezzle his company. I've never met a woman who decided to become an alcoholic. But sadly, I've known men who have lost their marriages and their businesses. I've known women who had to be committed to rehab. If you could talk with them, they would tell you the water didn't seem too hot at first. The water didn't seem too hot at first. And it didn't seem that to Solomon. And all of a sudden, he wakes up in a full boil. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude, that's something, underline the word attitude. Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Because Solomon's heart was divided, his kingdom gets divided. Now, there are three commitments we need to make this morning. Number one, the commitment and the desire to finish strong. We're a, we're a marathon church. 
We're a church that's got the DNA of 144 years. We, we are a church that may not be the flashiest church around, may not have the flashiest starts to things, but we are a church of marathoners. We are a church of finishers. And so we commit ourselves once again to discover his purpose in community for the journey through the finish line to the end of the journey. And then we ask for wisdom, number two. Ask God for wisdom. James 1 says, if any of us lack wisdom, we can ask God, God, show me, give us wisdom as to how to finish strong. And then the third part is, God, give me some accountability people. Do you have at least one person in your life, preferably two or three, that can call you out if they see the water that you're in getting too hot. I mean, I remember a, a guy back in Homer, New York, and I can see the car right in front of the diner that we were at back there and him calling me out on something in my life. And, and, and he literally saved my life by having that relationship where somebody can hold you accountable and, and they have the courage to do it and they love you enough to do it and you will receive from them that word that you're in water that's getting hotter, okay? And we need that from each other. Now, because Solomon's heart was divided, his kingdom is divided, next week we'll pick that up with the story of Rehoboam. But it all, what we see happen next week, all happened with little compromises like the frog in the kettle. And I wanna just close, before we do a closing worship song, the band's gonna come up during this closing clip. And it's a song called Slow Fade by the group Casting Crowns. And, and as we watch this together, I want us just to ask ourselves the question, where is my heart divided? Where are the little compromises that are, that are creeping in? And, and make it not just a question, but a prayer. God, in your wisdom, would you give me wisdom? Help me to see the blind spot that I can't see right now. Show me, Lord, the area of compromise that seems so small now, but could result in my being boiled spiritually if I don't deal with it when it's small. So let's make that our prayer. Let's question that.